Hi, I'm Shane Robertson, and welcome to the Maysville Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Here at Maysville, we want to practice loving God, loving others, and serving the world. I trust this sermon will be an encouragement to you as it challenges your heart and strengthens your walk of faith. Now, grab your Bibles as we get ready to hear from the Word of God. Two hundred and forty-five years ago, we know that our founding fathers signed their death warrant, their death certificates, if you will, against the tyranny of King George. They said, we have had enough, we are done, we are declaring our independence. And through that declaration of independence, we have a culture and a society today that was based on Judeo-Christian principles. The Bible tells us over in Proverbs, excuse me, in Psalms, chapter number 22, in verse number 28, the Scripture says this, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He is the ruler among the nations. In the King James, the Bible uses the word governor, or they govern, govern, if you would, to govern a country or to govern a nation. We may put in place kings, we may put in place presidents, we may put in place anyone in the form of leadership, but God is the one that governs nations. It is God is the one that watches over. We may think that we answer to our laws, that we answer to those that are in authority, but one day we will answer to the great authority, and that is King Jesus. Today I want to preach a message that I've entitled, The Bible and the Birth of America. And when you think about that passage of Scripture, how that the Lord rules the nations it was passages of Scripture like this right here that would, even 15 years ago, that would give us words that Calvin Coolidge even said. Calvin Coolidge said, and he was being the 30th president uh, of our uh, United States, in 1923 said, the foundations of our society and the government rest so much on the teaching of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in our country. He clearly understood, even some 15 years ago, that the Word of God is the foundation of our culture. It's the foundation of our nation. The Word of God was been, has been given to us by God so that we would have, if you will, a guidepost and a guideline that we might live in a nation under God. When I think about the beginnings of the Bible and what God did in the beginning, we cannot help but realize and recognize that when the Bible first came to the United States of America, the Bible in the beginning came with Columbus. Christopher Columbus, and many of us learned many years ago, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. How many remember that? All the old people. God bless you. The bottom line is simply this. We learn history and we learn that Christopher Columbus came over and he brought the very first Bible to the shores of America. And as the colonization of America was the driving factor of that was this independence, if you would, to worship God on our own. That we would have a copy of God's Word and we worship God on our own. And so the first English Bible that was commonly known in the colonies was the Geneva Bible. 
It was a solid translation with an extensive marginal notes that were written by religious leaders that came out of the exile of England. And during that time, they came out of that exile because Mary, Queen Mary I, between 1553 and 1558, was so hard on Christians and wanted to be worshipped and wanted everything to revolve around her. So much so that she exiled many Christians. And they would make these marginal notes in the Geneva Bible. And when it was printed, they had those marginal notes in there. These notes made up approximately one-third of all of the words that were contained in the Geneva Bible. Uh, it was a bitter and brutal time in American history. Many of the notes reflected the heated differences of those that were exiled in the British monarchy. Then King James came into power. King James took the throne after Queen Mary I, and he said that the notes in the Geneva Bible were very partial. They were untrue. He called them seditious. And he also said that they were savoring too much of dangerous and treasonous conceits. So King James made the ownership of the Geneva Bible a felony. And then he assembled a team of scholars to make another translation without the marginal notes. He wanted a strict 100% Bible without any notes whatsoever or cross-references for that matter. And so we set forth and we have today the King James translation of the Bible. It has become the most widely distributed Bible uh, in the world. Out of this European turmoil, however, many came into the new world of the United States of America seeking freedom for self-government. So Virginia, when they elected their very first legislature in 1619, the famous Mayflower Compact clearly spelled out the pilgrims' desire to be self-governed, to be a self-governed community. Like the Puritans and many other early immigrants here in this nation, the pilgrims took to their Bibles for guidance and direction. They first attempted a system of shared ownership similar to the one found in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. Upon further reading of scriptures, they found many passages of scripture which talked about private land ownership. And so this private land ownership became the driving force in America or in pre-America. And as the pilgrims oftentimes struggled to incorporate the spiritual principles into government principles, they knew clear well that they could not make it as a nation if they did not incorporate spiritual principles in their culture. And so with everything that they had and all the desires that they had, they would take the Word of God and they would apply it to their everyday lives. And they would say that this must be the moral standard by which all other ideas and actions should be judged. Let me say once again, those colonists that came wanted the Bible to be the moral standard of a society, one that looked to God, one that would not accept the absolute tyranny of the British monarchy, but that would say we are governed by the Lord, recognizing the fact that Psalms 22, 28 is true, saying we want to follow after God as being our king, God being our leader, God being our governor. And so we've come a long way since the founding of our country. When we think about what happened uh, there following, if you would, when the Bible came upon the, uh, up through the Mayflower Compact and through Christopher Columbus, we come next to a portion of history that we must stop, pause, and look at. And that is the Bible and the Revolution. 
the Bible and the revolution. When we think about the Bible and the revolution, we know that the revolution started around 1765. And in doing so, we also know and were introduced to a man who was called the father of the American Revolution, a man by the name of Samuel Adams. He was a devout patriot. His commitment to freedom spread contagiously during the dawn of the rebellion against British rule. In a report to the Boston Town Meeting on November 20th in 1772, Samuel Adams said this, and I quote, Every man living in or out of the state of civil society has a right peaceably and quietly to worship God according to the dictates of his conscience. Just and true liberty, equal and impartial liberty, the rights of the colonists, these may be best understood by reading and carefully studying the institutes of the great lawgiver and head of the Christian church, which are to be found clearly within the promulgated uh, in or, and propagated in the New Testament. What did Samuel Adams say that we find hope for society? He said we find it in the Word of God. The Bible is where we find a hope for our society. Patrick Henry picked up on this, and Henry gave uh, the American Revolution its voice. He delivered his impassionate speech, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech, just uh, one month after the Battle of Lexington in March of 1775. Remember what he said. He said, We must fight. He said, I repeat, sir, we must fight. An appeal to arms under the God of hosts is all that's left of us. Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battle. There is a just God who presides over the destiny of nations and who will rise up friends to fight our battles for us. Patrick Henry clearly understood that this nation, if governed by God, would be a nation that God would protect. These were the days of a great upheaval and danger in the United States as these men and women took everything that they had and said, we're willing to lay it on the line to be a nation under God. When we find what happened uh, 245 years ago in 1776, those who signed the Declaration of Independence, they signed their own death warrant. They knew that if they were apprehended, they would die as traitors. On another occasion, however, Patrick Henry reportedly held up his Bible and he said this to the crowd. He said, this book is worth all the other books which have ever been printed. And it has been my misfortune that I have never found time to read it with the proper attention and feeling till lately. I trust in the mercy of heaven that it is not too late. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we find the fact of the matter is that Patrick Henry came to a portion in his life and said, I'm not reading the Word of God like I should. And I hope that there's time left for me to get in the Word and for me to, to study the Word and to do what the Word says. I'm telling you, our founding fathers, even Patrick Henry, who repented publicly and said, I needed to get in the Word of God, says this is the cornerstone of a sound, righteous society. May God have mercy on our souls and may we get back to the Word of God. Noah Webster openly declared the importance of the Bible, both in religion and in politics. Listen to what he said. Noah Webster said, It is extremely important to our nation. 
in a political as well as a religious view that all possible authority and influence should be given to the Scriptures. For these furnish the best principles of civil liberty and the most effectual support of Republican government. Noah Webster clearly states that it is the scriptures that give us what we need in regard to politics as well as social. We're living in a culture today and it has been propagated through year after year after year after year. Don't you dare mix politics and religion. Don't you dare mix politics and religion. You can't separate Jesus Christ from politics or from anything because he's not a religion. He's a relationship. And when we get back to that relationship, he will encompass everything that we do as a nation. God, help us to get a, 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 a true revival where we come back to the Lord Jesus Christ and we recognize his word is true and everybody else is a liar. What is the cure for our culture today? It's getting back in the book. For when you get back in the book, you get back to Jesus. I love what Daniel Webster said. Daniel Webster has been called the great defender of the Constitution. Daniel Webster, too, pointed out to the Bible, pointed to the Bible as a necessity. It was the standard, if you will, of values to guide life in our free country. Listen to what Daniel Webster said. He said... To the free and universal reading of the Bible, men are much indebted for our right to view civil liberties. The Bible is a book which teaches man his own individual responsibility, his dignity, and his equality with his fellow man. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you today that Daniel Webster spoke very plainly and very truly that the, the cure for slavery during that day as well as the cure of slavery in days to follow was that we follow the Word of God. When we follow the Word of God, we find that each, we, each individual is responsible for the direction that he goes in. He's responsible for his dignity and he's responsible for the equality with his fellow man. Daniel Webster is clear. This is the value system that we must hold to in that day and also today. Where have we gone astray? you might say in our value system where have we gone astray today in our moral system I'll tell you where we've gone astray we've left the book we've kicked God out of school we kicked God out of the courtroom we don't uh, we let people swear themselves in into our government in something other than the Word of God we don't take it seriously anymore we need to get back to what Noah Webster and Daniel Webster and Patrick Henry and George Washington and all of our founders said the Word of God is what made this nation great. John Dickerson signed the United States Constitution. And he actually wrote the first draft of the Articles of Confederation in 1776. His writings was a significant part of the revolutionary movement. And some have called him the penman of the revolution. When he argued for the private ownership of property, he appealed to the authority of the Bible. He said, and I quote, a communication of her, that is, America's rights in general, and particularly of that great one, the foundation of all that rest their property, acquired with so much pain and hazard, should be disposed of by none but themselves, or to use the beautiful and emphatic language of the sacred scriptures. Quote, that they should sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. 
and none should make them afraid. Micah 4, 4. In defending the personal rights of property holders, we find that John Dickerson, the penman of the revolution, said that we must appeal to not just the scriptures, but the sacred scriptures. In appealing to the sacred scriptures, we see that we have the right to own property. The Bible tells us all the way over in the book of Genesis as one of the responsibilities that you and I have is to subdue the earth. It is our responsibility to take care of the earth. And in doing so, John Dickerson said, he said we must listen to the beautiful and emphatic language of Scripture. It would do us well to get back to the beautiful, emphatic scripture of lang- uh, the, uh, language of the Scriptures. I would have to ask myself this question and to you as well during this week. Make a commitment if you would. Make a commitment, if you would, to read the Scriptures. How much have you read the Scriptures this week? How long have you been in the Word of God this week? I'm telling you what, if we want to see our nation change, then we got to change. And if we're going to change, we got to get in the Word of God. But then we move forward. Not only do we see the Bible in the revolution, but I want, to note, want you to notice the Bible in the government. The Bible in the government. There is an old adage that says, if you want a good argument, just bring up religion and politics. Uh, That is true today. It has been true on this continent for hundreds, if not uh, hundreds of hundreds of years. It is safe to say that religion and politics have always been interwoven in American heritage. In the pursuit of liberty and freedom, the founding fathers were accurately aware that a democracy had to be governed by something. If it had not had a rule, uh, or excuse me, if it wasn't ruled by a monarchy or a dominating religious presence, then what are we going to be ruled by? A tremendous amount of thought went into answering this question in the decades before, during, and after the revolution. When the principles of the Bible were intentionally woven together in our judicial system, John Locke wrote extensively on this topic. Many look to John Locke and they want to talk about his non-religious or even his atheistic viewpoints. But I want you to notice in the things that he said, he pointed to the scripture almost every time he opened his mouth. He said this specifically, laws, human, must be made according to the general laws of nature and without contradiction to any positive law of scripture. Otherwise, they are ill-made. What did John Locke say in regards to this issue of law that's made in America? He said these laws must be bound on the Word of God. They must come out of the Word of God. He said if we make laws that aren't in accordance to the Word of God, otherwise, he said, they are ill-made. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you today that the laws in regards to the fact of marriage... What When we changed marriage in this society today, we find ourselves, just as John Locke said, on an ill-made law. It is a law that contradicts the Word of God. You ought not to be able to marry anybody other than someone of the opposite sex. The Bible says that he only made 
two genders, male and female. And he performed the very first wedding in the Garden of Eden. And through that, we find an institution, if you would, a moral law that exists all through the history of mankind. And for us to make a law that is contrary to the Word of God is ill-made and has created a domino effect in moving us fast to a hedonistic society. May God have mercy on our soul. When James Wilson signed the Declaration of Independence in the United States Constitution, he was an active delegate of the Continental Congress where he spoke 168 times. George Washington also appointed him as one of the original justices to the Supreme Court. In the, text, in, in the textbooks that he created to teach the very first generation of legal students in America, James Wilson wrote this. He said, all laws, however, may be arranged into two classes. Number one, divine. Number two, human. But it should always be remembered that this law, natural and revealed, made for men or for nations, flows from the same divine source. It is the law of God. Human law must rest its authority ultimately upon the authority that the law which is divine. What did he tell us in regards to James Wilson's, what did James Wilson say in regards to the law? Well, there's only two types. There's divine law and there's human law. But human law always has to line up with the divine law. In another of his words, uh, another of his works, uh, Wilson said this, in, compa- in comparison to the imperfections of our internal powers, our all-gracious creator, preserver, and ruler has been pleased to discover and enforce his laws by a revelation given to us immediately and directly from himself. This revelation is contained in the Holy Scriptures. What in the world did James uh, Wilson say? What did he say in regards to the laws of man? He said that this come as a holy scripture from our creator, from our preserver, and from our ruler. He points back to Psalms chapter 22 and verse 28 and simply says at the highest level of the court in America, he says we must follow the word of God. How far have we departed from God's Word? Noah Webster shared the same conviction. Noah Webster said, and I quote, The moral principles and precepts contained in the Scriptures ought to form the basis of all of our civil constitutions and laws. All of the miseries and evils which men suffer from vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war Proceed from them despising or neglecting the principles contained in the Bible. You can't get any clearer than that. Noah Webster clearly says that we base our moral principles on the word of the living God. Throughout the decades, we have seen that this conviction has been held strong. There was a man by the name of Robert C. Winthrop. In eight, from 1809 to 1894, he was a descendant from the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He was a Harvard graduate, and he was a senator from Massachusetts. 
He penned these words when he said, All societies of men must be governed in some way or another. The less they may have a straightened or a stagnant state government, the more they must have an individual self-government. The less they rely on public law or physical force, the more they must rely on private moral resistance, or, or excuse me, moral restraint. Men, in a word, must necessarily be controlled either by a power within them or by a power without them, either by the word of God or by the strong arm of man, either by the Bible or the bayonet. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, when you think about what Winthrop said, when he said that you have either got to be governed by the moral law that exists inside born-again children of God, and you're controlled by that, if you're not controlled by that, you have got to have a civil law that lines up with the Word of God. And we have got to be willing to recognize the fact that if you're unwilling to follow this law, then you have got to have some form of restraint because it produces a society that's out of control. And in the 21st century, we want to defund the police. When Winthrop said from his own lips, David, that if we can't be controlled by the moral law of the Word of God, then we've got to have civil law to take care of us. That goes back to Romans chapter number 13. Again, Calvin Coolidge in 1927 said this, If American democracy is to remain the greatest hope of humanity, it must continue abundantly in the faith of the Bible. What's wrong with our country today? I'll tell you, J.R., we've left the faith of the Bible. We've looked at... Uh, our courtrooms, and we said, let's not put it in there. We've looked at our schoolrooms, let's not put it in there. We looked in our public places, and we said, let's not put it in there. And by walking away from the faith that we've had in the Bible, we found ourselves in a society of hedonism. Just a few weeks ago, I was in Nashville, Tennessee. And I was traveling between the convention back to the hotel. My driver was a Christian man. He shared his testimony with me. And he was talking about how awful society was. I made a comment. I said, brother, I'm afraid we're not too many years away from people just walking down the street naked. To which he turned and said, Preacher, you're too late. It already happens today. We have no form of morality. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. There will rise a generation that knows not God. It is imperative that we recognize that it is nearly impossible to separate the Bible from the history of our society and government. It is intertwined with just about everything. 
For example, when the delegates came together in Philadelphia for what is now called the, Con the Constitutional Convention, one of the longest speeches was delivered by Benjamin Franklin. The delegates were, as, uh, were at an impasse over the, almost every issue regarding this new constitution. The statesman was frustrated. And he was frustrated at everything that was happening. And on June 28, 1787, Benjamin Franklin stood up and he looked at George Washington and he said these words. Mr. President, in this situation of the assembly groping as it were in the dark to find political truth, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, we were sensible of danger. We had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? The longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is possible that an empire can rise without his aid. Unless the Lord built the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babylon. Brothers and sisters, for us to walk away from the Bible, to walk away from the, con the contents of the Word of God, has put us in the same position as Bible builders. Where at one time we used to be Bible builders. Now we're Bible builders. And we're so educated, we've been educated far beyond our own intelligence. We need some more Benjamin Franklins to stand up and say we cannot forget from whence our help comes. Benjamin Franklin has never been considered to be one uh, of the more religious founding fathers. His faith and philosophies are debated to this day. Yet in this speech, he included clear biblical references from Genesis chapter 11, from James chapter 1 from Psalms chapter 27 and from Matthew chapter 10 as if they were just a natural part of his everyday language. And this was no exception. Donald S. Luntz and Charles S. Heineman, two historians from the University of Houston, did a 10-year study searching for the source of quotes used during the founding of the United States of America. They studied 15,000 documents from the colonial era. And they found this. They found of those 15,000 documents, 3,154 references were to some other sources just all around. Of the top four, 8.3% were from French philosopher Montesquieu. 7.9% were from the English jurist Sir William Blackstone and 2.9% from English philosopher John Locke. Now, please hear me out. According to this study, 
15,000 documents. Out of those 15,000 documents, only 2.9% came from John Locke. But what source was cited more than all three of these combined? That would be the Bible. The Bible was referred to 34% of the time, almost four times higher than the second most quoted source. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you today this. When our founding fathers signed the Declaration of Independence, they actually signed it two days ago. It took them two days to get it ratified and put the stamp of approval on it. That's why we celebrate on the 4th instead of the 2nd. But we find that they signed it on the 2nd. And when they signed that, they knew exactly what they were signing. They were signing a document that looked, if you would, to King George, and they said, we do not recognize you as being the tyrant supreme authority in our lives. We recognize God as the authority in our lives. And we want a self-governing body that we can have for the people, by the people. And we want it founded on the Word of God. When you think about that, you cannot help but think about the future of our nation. What is the future concerning the Bible? What would be the Bible in our future? The biblical legacy each of us has has been inherited by our forefathers. Our forefathers passed down to you and I an opportunity for us to keep this as the foundation of a moral culture that is stooped in immorality and sin. We find a beautiful example of this in history by, the man, by a man by the name of John Quincy. John Quincy was the son of John Adams. He was a leading champion for independence, and he was the second president of the United States. As a child, he watched carefully as the revolution emerged and the war was won and the United States came into being. He became our sixth president, and when he became father himself, he wrote an extensive letter to his own son. In that letter, he spells out quite uh, accurately what we should do from this point forward. He wrote his son, and I quote, My dear son, in your letter on the 18th of January to your mother, you mentioned that you read to your aunt a chapter in the Bible or a section of Dondridge's Antinotes every evening. This information gave me real pleasure. For so great is my veneration of the Bible and so strong my belief that When duly read and meditated on, it is of all books in the world that which contributes most to making men good, wise, and happy. That earlier my children begin to read it, the more steadily they pursue the practice of reading it through their lives. The more lively and confident will be my hope that they will prove useful citizens to their country, respectable members of society, and a real blessing to their parents. I have always endeavored to read it with the same spirit and temper of mind, which now I recommend to you. That is, 
uh, that is, with the intention and desire that it may contribute to my advancement in wisdom and virtue. I can only pray, Almighty God, for the aid of His Spirit to strengthen my good desires and to subdue my propensity to evil. For it is from Him that every good and perfect gift ascends. My custom is to read four or five chapters every morning immediately after rising from bed. It employs about an hour of my time and seems to me to be the most suitable manner of beginning the day. You have already come to the age in many respects. You know that difference between right and wrong. And you know some of your duties and the obligations that you are under to become acquainted with them all. It is in the Bible you must learn them and from the Bible how to practice them. Your duties are to God, to your fellow creatures, and to yourself. Let us then search the Scriptures. The Bible contains the revelation of God's will, or the revelation of the will of God. It contains the history of the creation of the world and of mankind. It contains a system of religion and of morality, which we may examine upon its own merits. It contains numerous collection of books written at different ages of the world by different authors, which we may survey as curious uh, monuments of antiquity and as literary compositions. In what light soever we regard it, whether with reference to revelation, to literature, to history, or to morality. It is an individual and inexhaustible mine of knowledge and virtue. From your affectionate father, John Quincy Adams. From Plymouth Rock in 1620 to 600 Pennsylvania Avenue today, the Bible's influence is woven through every fabric of our democracy and our society. Every time a new president places his hand on the Bible, swearing to uphold the duties of his office, another thread of biblical legacy is stretched in, or, or is stitched into the tapestry of American democracy. How sad is it when the leader of the free world rejects the very principles this nation was founded upon. What we need in our culture today, brothers and sisters, is to have a historical revival and to learn that God Almighty governs nations. And as God governs nations, He governs this nation. And the track that we are on as we are opposing God and walking away from God and wanting to become more humanistic and more hedonistic in our philosophies, more hedonistic in our moral standards, more hedonistic in our dealings with everyday life. Remember, remember what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. When we look at Sodom and Gomorrah, we find that the problem in their morality all boils down to one thing. They failed to be thankful to God. You cannot be thankful as a nation for something that you have suppressed and rejected. And while as Christian Americans, 
we sing God bless America. The only way God will bless America is if we repent of our sins, seek his face, and turn from our wicked ways. Then he said, I'll hear from heaven. I'll forgive your sins, and I will heal your land. Brothers and sisters, our land is sick today. And the cure from the great physician is prayer. I wonder today, is there anyone here that cares about our nation enough to pray that we get back to the basics? Could we bow for prayer? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're here today and maybe you have never trusted Christ as your Savior. The whole purpose for America's establishment is to have a nation where every man, woman, boy, and girl would have a copy of the Word of God. And that copy of God's Word would be the benchmark and the standard by which we would live our lives to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ that we might be saved. Dear friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, please know just a few things. Number one, God loves you. Number two, God made a way for you to get to heaven. Number three, that way is through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man will come to the Father but by me. Friend, if you would like to come to the Father today, it's as simple as admitting you're a sinner, believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins, and repenting of your sins and confessing Jesus as your Lord. If that's something you would like to do today with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, would you say something like this to the Lord? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Savior. And today I repent of my sin. And I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. I'll live for you in Jesus' name. Now, before I say amen, maybe you're here today and maybe you prayed a prayer like that, knowing that it was not the prayer that saved you. You're saved by faith. But if you did that today, I sure would love to pray for you. I'm going to ask us to stand here in just a few moments after I close us in prayer. And we're going to sing a good old-fashioned hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And I'm going to call this invitation in two ways. Number one, for those of you that are born-again children of God, that have seen the error of our ways as a nation, and know that someone's got to stand in the gap, I'm calling Christians to come and pray for the United States. Pray for those that are in authority. Pray that God would raise up godly men to serve in office that not only say with their lips that they love God, but they demonstrate they fear God with their life. 
Would you come and pray that God would help us today? It's the only way we'll experience revival. And then if you're here today, number two, the second call on this invitation. Today, if you do not know the Lord, or maybe you just prayed and you asked God to save you, I want to pray for you today. I want to put in your hand a tool that will help you grow in your faith. It won't cost you a dime. It's absolutely free. Would you come and receive that today? Father, thank you for the United States of America. Thank you, Father, for flag-waving Christian Americans. And while we don't worship patriotism, we worship God knowing that this nation was founded on these Judeo-Christian principles. And the foundation of this nation was built on the Word of God. Help us to get back to that. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. As a pastor, my primary concern is your eternity. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that you can know where you will spend eternity. I would love to connect with you and talk more about your walk of faith. You can email and find more information about the ministry of Maysville Baptist Church on our website. Just type maysvillebaptist.net in your search engine. Also, you can support this ministry through our website or by mailing your gift to 8875 Highway 82 Spur Road, Maysville, Georgia, 30558. God bless you, and I hope you tune in next week where once again we turn our hearts towards the Word of God.